HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2019. Cheers. There's a crispness in the air tonight, the kind of chilliness that sneaks up on you in late summer. It's thrown some people for a loop, clearly, because the folks who are still around at this hour are a mix of sweaters and jeans and shorts and t-shirts rubbing their arms to stay warm. Sonny, John, Aaron, and Brian, they're a mixed bag. A couple hoodies, some cargo shorts, one full-body electric unicycle windsuit. But the cold doesn't seem to bother them for one reason. It's a few minutes after dusk, and they're packing up to go home. Today, I believe, was like 726. We don't play. They're out here tossing an aerobi, which looks kind of like a frisbee crossbred with a donut. A flying disc that's all rim, and according to Sonny, it's the longest distance man-made thrown object in the world. I come from Staten Island. I'm native Staten Islander, and there's no other park like this. So I come here to throw this aerobi because it's... It covers the distance that we throw it. So when they close it early, we get tight. So it's important. So we know when dusk is every day. And, uh, they don't close it early now anymore. But yeah, we, we're, we we're, actually, we we're actually seats. a little late right now. We're four minutes late. Yeah. They're leaving with purpose, if not necessarily urgency. The aerobi stays grounded, but Jim Morrison is still crooning over a tiny speaker while officials calmly make their rounds in golf carts ushering people out. Yeah, if you have a group of friends, just tell them to meet you here and you'll have a blast. On the, this nickname, it's a nickname called the, the beach on the weekends because there's a lot of people out yeah, in bikinis. Similar and as you know, like, like city beach. It's like what you would normally do on a beach. You just sort of do here. Yeah. Sundays is a great day too in the summer. A lot of things go on. Yeah, you Sunday have, a lot uh, of stuff. You have a Haitian yeah. community that have been coming out here for decades that oh, yeah. they play music. Uh, right here by the band show. You have a Cuban community Cubans. that comes on every Sunday as well, same day as them, that play by the uh, boat, uh, <coughs> boat base, the boat, the rowboat lake by the bridge. And you also have an African drum, they come here on Sundays. And you have the skaters and uh, disco music on Sundays as well. Yeah. And they also have been coming out here for a very, decades. very, very long time. Yeah. yeah. So, that goes on. Central Park's the best place in the world, if you ask me. Best park <laughs> in the world. Slowly but surely, they wander out with the rest of the stragglers. Sonny, the Staten Islander, has a ferry to catch. 
and John goes back home to the Upper West Side where he's lived his whole life. They pause at the edge of the meadow as a group of marathon runners go past before they make their way out of the park and back towards the city. A horse-drawn carriage softly pulls under the path behind them as the last of the daylight disappears behind the skyline and the lights flicker on in Manhattan. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn. They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bar None. I'm so excited to be talking with you again about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And I knew when we were writing this second season that we couldn't just begin our sophomore effort with any old cocktail. We wanted to kick things off talking about something with stature, something iconic. And really, there is no better drink to do that with than the Manhattan. Even if you're a drinks 101 layperson, and you know two or maybe three different cocktails, you know about the Manhattan, and what's more, I think, you know to respect it too. And of course, because, well, it's us, we can't talk about the Manhattan without talking about Manhattan, the island, the borough, and what exactly was going on back then when this venerable elder statesman of cocktaildom was born. First, to set the scene, it's the late 1800s. America is through the Civil War in one piece, and parts of the country, like New York City for one, are changing at a rate that's almost hard to fathom as a person on the street who's living and working there. Because after the war ended, the nation's industrial sector started booming. Steel, oil, railroads, they're all taking off, and the men behind them, men with names like Carnegie and Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, they're accumulating money at a rate that no one has ever seen before. People are getting wealthy, and like all rich people from the beginning of time, they needed something to spend it on. People had a lot of leisure time. Leisure time arrived, and you might go to a bar, um, and you might stay a while, and you might have a few things. And you might sip at them and, you know, talk the issues of the day and, and not really have uh, too, many, uh, too many cares, too many worries. You know, the people in these bars and like the great hotel bars in New York, like the, the Fifth Avenue Hotel or the Hoffman House, you know. These are beautiful, opulent places where you were meant to linger. Robert Simonson is a cocktail writer whose work has a way of finding its way into the pages of the New York Times. 
He writes a lot about how and when cocktails were invented, but also what was happening behind the scenes when they came to life. I think it's referred to as the golden age of cocktails because um, the bartenders and mixologists really came into their own. There were these beautiful bars, these beautiful hotel bars. They had all these ingredients at their fingertips. Um, They were respected members of the community, um, expected to come up with original drinks. All the um, important cocktail books were published during that time, like 1880 to 1920. so uh, it, it, it really was, you know, this great flourishing of this, uh, what was acknowledged by that time as an American art, the art of, of cocktail mixing. There's no doubt that it was an age of opulence and finery, of five-star hotels and exclusive clubs. But as always happens when wealth is allowed to build and build and build and build and build, there was an ugly side. While the late 1800s were a boom time for some, For many others, it was an age of extreme poverty, endemic social problems, and a completely non-existent safety net. A lot of these people were immigrants, first and second generation Americans who found themselves caught up in the money-making gears of industry. The splendor of the day was masking very real and very widespread problems. That's why, referencing a thin gold layer over a rotting piece of wood, Mark Twain dubbed his era the Gilded Age. So, um, yeah, Gilded Age, Golden Age. They're together, yeah. (laughs) Can't have one without the other, huh? I guess not. I guess not. The times were changing, and so was the island of Manhattan. Due to the now-famous influx of newcomers through Ellis Island and the installation of a revolutionary aqueduct system to provide the city with fresh water, New York's population started to explode. Combine that with Gilded Age money doing what money always does, that is, pool up and multiply in downtown Manhattan, and New York started to expand upward at a stunning rate. Where, for centuries, the city proper had mostly occupied the southern tip of the island, now businesses and residences were popping up farther north than they ever had before. Forward-thinking city planners realized that if they didn't do something, and quick, very soon there would be no more undeveloped real estate on the entire island. And that's when they realized what they needed. A park. I mean, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to the beginning, 1848 is kind of the call for a park. The grid's in place, and if you don't set something aside, the city's not going to really transform fundamentally from there. All the streets are going to be taken. You'll have nothing but building. Kyle Salee is a tour guide with Central Park Food Tours. Walking through the park one warm September evening, he paused between a rock formation and a baseball diamond to reflect on William Cullen Bryant, a literary giant of his day and an early figure in the story of how that rock and that baseball diamond and two 21st century New Yorkers even came to be there in the first place. He called for this idea of there being a park on the edge or a park in the center that gave you some separation or something that was going to stay nature-wise. So that really starts a about decade-long effort to buy out this land and through about 1856, uh, this land is all purchased on out. The idea of a park is one thing. Actually building it, that's another. Soon, a committee of powerful New Yorkers found themselves in possession of just over 800 acres of extremely valuable real estate in the heart of Manhattan, and only a ghost of an idea of what to do with it. Early plans for the park were put into play, but then quickly abandoned. They were lacking something. Charm, taste, soul, 
Whatever it was, the commissioners realized that they had to cast a wide net to find it. A public contest to design the new park was announced, attracting dozens of entries, including one from a budding landscaper named Calvert Vox and his partner, the current superintendent of the park, Frederick Law Olmsted. In a park, the largest provision is required for the human presence. People must come together and must be seen coming together in carriages, on horseback, and on foot. And the concourse of animated life must be made, if possible, an attractive and diverting spectacle. Olmsted and his partner were men of their time. Young, enthusiastic, and emboldened by the seemingly endless possibilities of the age. This was a time when technological marvels were a dime a dozen, and the promise of a future where everything was figured out was always just a couple of days away. That was the zeitgeist of the Gilded Age, that they had it figured out. It's, of course, being art, culture, science, architecture, landscaping, fashion, pretty much everything. And if people just listened to them, the upper-class straight-presenting white men who controlled all the 19th century's levers of power, everything would be fine and sorted out forever. It makes sense when you think about the park, because when else in history would it have been possible to build a gigantic public space in the middle of the biggest city in the country with taxpayer money and design it to last for the rest of time? And according to Kyle, the leading minds behind the park didn't just think it was possible, they thought it was going to be easy. Yeah, they all come from different backgrounds. Uh, they did railroad, canal, and water systems. So, you know, you're doing those massive infrastructure projects. This should be a piece of cake, especially if you get all those collected minds and thoughts around. <laughs> so it was, it was coming more from a place of uh, cockiness than from a place of, you know, uh, altruism and preservation. It was more of a because we can, so we will type of thing, you think? I would say probably... 70-30. 70% cocky, 30% preservation. <laughs> Central Park has 22 different archways. They have names like Inscope Arch, Drip Rock Arch, Green Gap Arch. According to Vox and Olmsted's plan, each one has unique ornamentation and no two are the same. In this particular arch near the southern border of the park, a few people stop and a few people even listen. Not bad for a crowd headed home after a long day at the office. Thanks, man. No problem. Did you did you write that yourself? No, it's Nora Jones. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I wish. thought it sounded kind of familiar. I wish. Yeah. It's definitely not how she's performing. <laughs> Jackson is a busker. He lives in Queens across the East River. The archway he's playing in, he says this is his second favorite. Number one is Grayshot Arch, currently under construction. But he says this one is nice too. Good acoustics and good foot traffic. I would say about... 90% of people walk by with a slight glance. Maybe 7% of people like stop and listen for like a chorus or a verse. And then like 2 or 3% might sit and listen to like a song or two. Okay. That would be how I'd break it down. Nice. Have you, do you perform anywhere else or are you kind of like a Central Park purist? 
Um, I live in Astoria, and I tried like playing like in Astoria Park, and you just like don't get the foot traffic. It's like not as much there. Like this is especially tourists, you know, because they love it. And like I feel like most like just people that live in New York and New Yorkers don't want to, don't have the same open eyes and open ears as tourists do. So yeah, mostly Central Park for busking. That's kind of New York's brand, though, isn't it? Always moving too fast, always on the go, never slowing down, not for anybody, no way, no how, get out of my way, I'm walking here. It's why mid-19th century Manhattan was fertile soil for the golden age of cocktails. See, up until that point, cocktails had kind of only come in one shape. In fact, the word cocktail itself didn't used to mean any mixed beverage with alcohol. It meant one specific recipe, made with sugar, water, spirit, and bitters, or what we know of today as the old-fashioned. But when new ingredients showed up behind the bar, and a new wave of bartenders started tossing them into mixing glasses, that old mold broke fast. Here's Robert Simonson again. And in the years after the Civil War, um, we started to get more and more things uh, from, from in the States, you know, mainly from Europe. We were getting new liqueurs, we were getting vermouth, we were getting all these uh, additional um, intoxicants. And the, the bartenders, mixologists being creative types, started mixing them into the drinks. I mean, I think cocktails were much simpler affairs before that. Of all the new ingredients that landed in American ports during the Gilded Age, one in particular took the bartending industry by storm. Toward the end of the 19th century, the New York Sun noted that the amount of Italian wine being imported into the country had doubled in the past decade. The Sun pointed out that this isn't because Americans have developed a taste for Italian wine, and they did it with something that sounds an awful lot like smug satisfaction. Instead, they point to two other imports. Italians themselves and vermouth. Vermouth took American palates by storm, first the sweet red kind and then its drier, paler French cousin. People drank it straight at first, but it wasn't long before curious mixologists started throwing it into cocktails. Now we're taking these uh, fancy uh, ingredients, often wine-based, um, with secret botanicals, and we were, we were applying them to the spirits we had been drinking. We were applying them to the Geneva to the whiskey, to the rum, and, and seeing what we came up with on the other, other end. In this light, the Manhattan is almost a variation on the tried-and-true cocktail formula. Think about it. The spirit and bitters are there. The water is still around in the form of ice. The only difference is that vermouth is providing sweetness now instead of straight sugar. It might seem like an obvious, even simple move today, but at the time, it was a game-changer, opening the floodgates for all kinds of crazy experimentation. It's why Philip Green, in the title of his book on the Manhattan, calls it the first modern cocktail. It's generally accepted that it was the first one to take vermouth, uh, in this case sweet vermouth, and apply it to a cocktail formula and come up with something on the other end. Uh, the martini came shortly afterwards, using the same kind of model basically, but, but the Manhattan was first, and the Manhattan was the one that grabbed people's attention the first, and you know, got their enthusiasm up. That was what Olmsted and Vox needed to do with their plan for the park. Grab people's attention and build enthusiasm. Their design was up against a number of other flashier, weirder ideas, including one that called for a giant lake with islands in the shape of the world's continents. And on top of this, the park needed to include a number of pre-specified features. 
a parade ground, a fountain, three playing fields, a flower garden, a lookout tower, and a pond for skating in the winter. Which put the two young architects in a bind. How do you craft something stately, tasteful, and relaxing that's also utilitarian and make it stand out in a crowded field? Remember, this was a public contest. You don't win contests by just being fine. Their solution was, frankly, there's no other word for it, brilliant. They turned the rocky, rugged landscape of central Manhattan into an advantage, designing a park with winding trails, wide open spaces, and a meandering feel that tracked the natural landscape instead of fighting it. While other designs had museums and fountains and concert halls and racetracks and promenades, Olmsted and Vox doubled down on leaving well enough alone. The other designs, from what I've seen of them, you know, I have to go off of 1840s drawings, and that's all I can really make sense of and get my head around since I can't walk through those versions of the park. It just seemed like they were trying to have it all without the different experiences. The idea you'd walk into a park and basically on the first visit, you could experience the same thing on the 60s, you'd experience up in like, let's say, 85th Street. And I think a real testament to the design they have here is that there are very, very different segments of the park and different experiences depending on which aspect you go through. Where other plans were built around buildings, Vox and Olmsteads hinged on nature. When other designers got clever, making all the paths through the park look like the branches coming out of a tree trunk, for example, Vox and Olmsted focused on views, prizing diagonal walking trails since they offered the longest stretches of uninterrupted greenery. Their plan took the revolutionary step of sinking all the roads passing through the park eight feet below ground, so that the horses and the carriages and the pedestrians were all out of sight. The two architects transformed into landscaping magicians, crafting the illusion that this wasn't the heart of the biggest city in America, but a beautiful pastoral rolling meadow, somewhere upstate in the middle of nowhere. They borrowed a few touches from Europe's more beloved public parks, but ultimately they made their design a place where someone could be seen if they wanted and disappear into nature when they didn't. They called it the Greensward Plan. Here's Olmsted again. It is one great purpose of the park to supply to the hundreds of thousands of tired workers who have no opportunity to spend their summers in the country, a specimen of God's handiwork that shall be to them what a month or two in the White Mountains or the Adirondacks is to those in easier circumstances. They got the job. In 1858, Vox and Olmsted officially became the designers of Central Park. What happened next is coming up after the break. I've said it, you've said it. At this point, frankly, I'm tired of saying it, but here goes one more time. It's been a really long year. And with everything we've been through, one of the silver linings has been watching the folks in our industry do what we've always done. We've banded together, we've gotten creative to solve problems, we've helped each other out. For me, one of the best parts of these past 12 months has been talking to folks all over the world, from Sydney to Lima to Nairobi to Reykjavik, about how they've grown and adapted and how they plan to come back from this stronger than ever. 
It's brought into focus that we are all truly in this together, which is why I am so excited to announce that the U.S. Bartenders Guild and Diageo have reimagined their world-class bartending competition as a week-long virtual event that's open to everyone. Seriously, everyone. No matter where you are right now on planet Earth, if you are over 21 and you have a passion for great bartending, there's a seat at the table for you. Diageo Bar Academy is sending the top 50 bartenders from the U.S. to compete at the global finals in Madrid this July in four fierce and exciting challenges. Personally, I'm particularly excited about the Batched and Ready to Go Challenge, which is going to pit the finalists against one another in a takeaway cocktail battle royale. Who can design the best drink that not only tastes delicious when you buy it, but also after you've walked the half hour back home through heavy foot traffic in July? I'll be tuning in to find out, and frankly... You should too. You can watch this truly inclusive, one-of-a-kind event by going to diageobaracademy.com and clicking on World Class. Then register for the event to watch live on the main stage or stream past competitions on demand. Oh, and the best part? The whole thing's free. Seriously, free. So head on over to diageobaracademy.com to check it out, and I'll see you this summer in Madrid from the comfort of my couch. Cheers. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh-cut hay and meadow-sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the midnight marigold tomorrow either, trust me. To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. 
Cheers. There's really no doubt about it. When it comes to cocktails, the Manhattan, possibly more than any other drink, has a truly awesome name. What's a better name for a cocktail? What's a fancier name for a cocktail than the Manhattan cocktail? There isn't one. I think it's a, even a fancier name than the martini. It's just a classy name. Spirits writer Robert Simonson again. I've always been a big believer in names and the power of names. Even when you're talking about historical figures, politicians and movie stars, if you have a good name, that goes a long way. Um, and the same is true with a cocktail. I'm sure there have been many great cocktails that have lousy names and we have forgotten about them and we don't drink them because they had a bad name. But where does that oh-so-classy name come from? Is it named after the island? Some historical event, perhaps? Well, in fact, odds are good that the drink itself isn't named after the island per se, but a private club, a swanky place called the Manhattan Club. Most of these clubs had bars, they had private bars, and the clubs were for, you know, uh, wealthy and well-appointed people. And um, it's the kind of place where a fancy drink like that would be, would be born. Most historians agree that the Manhattan Club, a venerable old institution at the corner of 15th and 5th, is the birthplace of the Manhattan. As for who invented it there and when and why, that's a matter of some speculation to this day. There's a trio of origin stories around the Manhattan, easily the most famous of which involves a socialite named Jenny Jerome. The legend goes that Miss Jerome, a staple of the New York upper class and mother of future Prime Minister Winston Churchill, was hosting a victory party at the Manhattan Club for newly elected Governor Samuel J. Tilden. It was reported that in December of 1874, Mr. Jerome, wanting to impress her guests, whipped up a concoction of vermouth, bitters, and rye whiskey and christened it after her illustrious hosts, the Manhattan. It's a great story, but if you do a little research or, you know, Google it, it quickly becomes clear what a stretch that would have been for poor Jenny, given how on the last day of November in 1874, she was back in England giving birth to Winston Churchill. It, however, had nothing to do with uh, Jenny Jerome, as some people say, you know, the mother of Winston Churchill, that she either ordered it or invented it or it was for a party that she threw. I, I think it just was created at the club. The second theory involves a judge named Charles H. Truax, a prodigious drinker and, by all accounts, a very large man. His daughter, who went on to become a food writer, alleged that Judge Truax invented the cocktail at the Manhattan Club after his doctor advised him to knock it off with his usual drink, a double martini. Setting aside the fact that a double Manhattan would be just as bad for you, if not worse, there are a few holes in the Judge Truax story. First, the good judge was a member at the time of the Knickerbocker Club, not the Manhattan, but more importantly, the Manhattan, by all accounts, was invented before the martini and not afterwards. The final theory is the vaguest, and yet, in a lot of ways, it's the hardest to dispute. It comes from Valentine's Manual of Old New York and asserts that, quote, the Manhattan cocktail was invented by a man called Black, who kept a place 10 doors down Houston Street on Broadway. It's from a credible source and would still place the origin of the drink in Manhattan, the island, if not the club. 
The biggest strike against this version of events is that Black's Tavern, as far as anyone can determine, was much farther south than the author of the piece alleges. It's maybe the most frustrating of all the Manhattan's origin stories because, while it's probably not true, it's extremely difficult to prove false. Which of the origin stories do you think is the most accurate, and do you have a favorite one? Well, I think so. The most accurate, just the most entertaining story of the creation of Manhattan. Oh. I don't know, I have a problem with liking stories because they're entertaining, I want them to be true. In reality, it's nearly impossible to prove or disprove beyond a shadow of a doubt who did or did not create the Manhattan. The most likely explanation is that it was invented at some point in the late 1800s at the Manhattan Club, and that the person who made it, like so many bartenders do, forgot to jump up and down the first time they mixed it like a contestant on Price is Right and scream, yes, it was me, loud enough that history could hear them. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where the Manhattan came from. We have the drink. And frankly, that's enough. Where is the stairs, Dad? Dad. Do you know that movie, Kevin? Yeah. Little kids, Home Alone. Oh, yeah. There's going to be stairs, you know, where he will jump and run. Like where the the terrace is, the fountain? Oh, damn. I think... A group of students from Uzbekistan, here on J-1 visas, have come to Central Park in search of one of the things that New York is most famous for, being a set piece for the movie Home Alone 2. It's their last day in America. They're flying home tomorrow. And while they're here, they formed, frankly, a kind of surprising assessment of the place. But American people are so easygoing, you know. Not easy going, like easy to understand. Yeah, easy to understand, easy to uh, get on well with. So you actually have found New Yorkers to be really friendly. Yeah. And easy to get along with. That is, I don't think they would self-describe that way. Really? It sounds impossible, but it's true. If you poll a random sampling of foreign tourists in Central Park on the same day, you'll run into the same startling conclusion over and over and over again. New Yorkers are nice. I feel like we have this reputation of being the least friendly people on the planet. No, you don't. It's confirmed by a pair of Dutch tourists by the fountain on Bethesda Terrace. New Yorkers are thoughtful, gracious, and sweet. I was a little bit worried uh, before we we went uh, here because, like you said, people are like really pushy and and nasty and... uh, but they're not. They're really friendly. They, they chat with you. Uh, they want to take a picture of you. And uh, when they bump uh, into you, they say, oh, sorry, you know. And I, I was really surprised when I first got here. I was like, whoa, people are actually quite nice around here. It's one of the most charming things you come across talking to tourists in Central Park. And to be clear, there is no shortage of tourists in Central Park. Try as we might to put up a tough exterior, these intrepid foreigners always manage to suss out the essential niceness at the heart of all New Yorkers. But this idea of a New York identity, it's not immortal. The notion of what it meant to be a New Yorker and really an American, that was being built right alongside Central Park. Here's Kyle again. I think there's a big fear of this being done with almost exclusively immigrant labor. And... uh, Uh, trying to make sure that this was a real city project, that this is by New Yorkers for New Yorkers was kind of the big thing. 
But what does that mean exactly? By New Yorkers for New Yorkers. Thanks to a massive influx of immigrants in the late 1800s, Manhattan was one of the most diverse places in America. And so, in a sense, the concept of a New Yorker was a very multicultural thing. But then there was Tammany Hall, that infamous political machine that ran New York for so many years under Boss Tweed. For much of the Gilded Age, they were the ones deciding who was a New Yorker and who wasn't. You have a lot of laborers who are doing marches and doing demonstrations, making sure, hey, we want to make sure that local New Yorkers, um, some anti-immigrant record, uh, rhetoric, but also some laborers. And, you know, we are talking kind of, you know, pre, pre like really early 20th century union talks, but we are talking people are trying to organize and make sure their voice is being heard. And some politicians had to run on that. In theory, Central Park was a place for everybody. The designers agreed on it. The politicians agreed on it. The people agreed on it. It was a place where all were welcome. But in practice, things were different. Before the park, before Olmsted and Vox even met one another, Manhattan's main public space was the Battery, way down on the southern tip of the island. This was where most of New York's population lived for generations, and so naturally, the Battery was where they gathered to stroll, socialize, promenade, to see and to be seen. It was an egalitarian space, for the most part. But around the time the city broke ground on Central Park, a lot of prominent New Yorkers were complaining loudly and publicly that the Battery was being overrun. They groused about loafers, the poor, foreigners, you know, people who make them uncomfortable. And Central Park, keep in mind, is five miles uptown. It wasn't as easy to get to as the Battery was. For a lot of people, that was a good thing. There was also this discussion in the early years, well, the early decade, I should say, of the park, where, you know, it's only for the people who live up here. We're well before the tra- you know, trains, the, the more simplistic trains we had back then, before we really start talking the subway system. It was for those who had the means to get up here on a regular basis, and it was more for the wealthy residential areas on up here, not necessarily for the average person. Remember, the people who lived uptown were the people who had money. They could afford more house, more space, more everything. They were the people serving on steering committees, shaping public opinion, hosting dinners for politicians. And they were the ones drinking cocktails. A lot of these fancier cocktails, these ones with vermouth, I mean, they did come out of the upper classes. These were the people who drank these drinks. I mean, uh, the martini was routinely linked with these mythical figures called clubmen in the newspapers, men who belonged to clubs. Clubmen, that is, people who had the wealth and the stature to belong to places like the New York Club or the Knickerbocker Club or, yes, the Manhattan Club, weren't just a curiosity in the 1800s. They were revered. They're the people who drank these drinks. And and that continued, I think, you know, in the public's imagination, the sort of person who drinks a Manhattan or a martini is very different from the person who drinks a beer in a shot. We're talking, it's, it's, a, it's a question of class. They were, in a way, some of the first people to be famous simply by dint of being famous. And there was certainly enough wealth going around to support this cult of celebrity for celebrity's sake. But whenever a society becomes too obsessed with the comings and goings of the rich and powerful, it puts itself at a huge risk of blinding itself to real problems affecting real people. 
in practice in the first few years, it was a question of whether you actually truly had physical access to the park. If you need to walk five miles to get to the park, you're not likely to come up here on a regular basis. Whereas if it's in your backyard, you're here almost every day. Is it fair to say that the people who did have the park in their backyard were on board with the, you know, they, they liked the idea of this being a park for people of all backgrounds, but were happy that it wasn't really that way in practice? I think that's a fair assessment because, I mean, in terms of the... I think that's probably a fair assessment. It's cliche, but money talks. And people who have the most talk the loudest. People are starting to gather in front of Tavern on the Green, a restaurant on the western side of the park. It's late, so more New Yorkers are going out than coming in. And right now, those that leave are greeted by a car in the driveway. It's flashing its lights, and it's opening its doors on autopilot, both the normal ones in the front and the DeLorean-style batwings in the back, and all in perfect time to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I already met the owner. And I suggested a, an app, because there's a menu on the, on the screen. Like, all, all this funny stuff is in there, but there's one missing. I said, Elon, you're missing the Netflix app. And it's coming at the end of this morning. When that's you said, awesome. When you said Elon, are we talking about this? Elon Musk. I was going to say, I figured that's the only Elon I could think of. Toward the end of the Gilded Age, there's this phrase that starts popping up in philosophical writings. Conspicuous consumption. It's the idea that the wealthy and the powerful stay that way, not just by being rich, but by looking rich. They promenade and buy fancy cars and drink fancy drinks, not because they can, but because they have to to remind everyone who's really in charge. The thinker behind this term used it to criticize the wealthy, but there were other philosophers who didn't share his views. Herbert Spencer, an English writer, he saw the rich as an evolutionarily superior stripe of humanity. In describing the inevitable disappearance of the poor at the hands of the wealthy and the powerful, he coined the phrase, survival of the fittest. His anti-charity, anti-immigrant, deeply racist views gained a lot of traction in certain Gilded Age circles, eventually going by the name Social Darwinism. Olmsted, meanwhile, was having money problems of his own. Labor disputes started popping up during the 1860s, and the young architect was at loggerheads with the park's new comptroller, who constantly questioned his expenditures and hovered over every decision he made. Eventually, Olmsted addressed the board and told them that enough was enough. Have the bridges and archways taken more money than you voted for them? Those we built ourselves have not. Have the roads cost more than we reckoned? They have a small percentage. Has the embankment material from outside cost more than we reckoned? It has not. What is it that has cost so much more and why? That is what I cannot tell you. That is what I want to know. That is what I have no means of knowing. In January of 1861, Frederick Law Olmsted officially resigned. Things weren't going smoothly for the Manhattan cocktail either. 
After arriving to early and unprecedented national acclaim, this drink had to deal with the ugly side effect that always trails right behind early success. Knockoffs. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, there are numerous accounts of patrons ordering Manhattans at bars around the country and encountering drinks made with ginger, lemon juice, and eggs. Granted, a lot of these stories are about New Yorkers trying to order Manhattans in quaint little towns, and just like you shouldn't go to your local dive bar and order a Ramos, these people probably should have known better. The good news, though, is that since then, the Manhattan has settled into a nice, comfortable groove. I'll say this, that if I'm in a strange restaurant or a strange bar, I'm probably, and I'm going to order a mixed drink, I'll go for a Manhattan before a martini because there is less chance it will be screwed up. Um, I, with Martini, there are all kinds of questions. With Manhattan, I think even even the most uh, ill-educated bartender knows it's two to one with bitters, pretty much. The Manhattan, by and large, is a known quantity at this point, due perhaps to the fact that it's stayed pretty much the same over the years. With a few exceptions, cough, cough, prohibition cough, it's always been relatively easy to get decent whiskey, decent vermouth, and Angostura bitters behind the same bar. But beyond that, there's a certain core stability to this drink, a dependable streak that gives it its long and storied staying power. It has had a relatively stable history. I mean, it's always been whiskey, and it's almost always been sweet vermouth, and there's usually bitters in there. Um, in the beginning, it was more of a 50-50 proposition, like half whiskey, half vermouth bitters. And it's like that for about 40 years until you start seeing more whiskey and, and, and less vermouth. But compared to like the martini, which is just all over the map, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a stable drink, um, a sturdy drink. And uh, I tend to think of it that way. Like the martini is so roller coaster-ish. I mean, there's so much drama connected to the martini, but the Manhattan is like, you know, the strong silent type who's kind of standing up there against the wall who kind of knows what he is. And that rock-ribbed certainty, this strong, liquid, moral compass, it would go on to spark something truly special in the world of cocktails. After Olmsted's showdown with the board, the labor disputes continued, but they trended in an interesting direction. Wages for a day's work, which used to be 60 cents, were now topping out at a dollar, or even a dollar ten, with the most skilled workers getting almost two bucks a day. It was a bellwether of what was coming as the Gilded Age drew to a close, ushering in an era of sweeping social change. The next few decades would see tighter labor laws, the end of widespread political corruption, and the right to vote for women. It's known today as the Progressive Era, and you can see those changes, those very real and lasting societal changes, anytime you choose to visit Central Park. Conception of Park, and this actually goes into all the entrances throughout Central Park. If you go through any of the entrances of Central Park, there's usually a designation there. So, like, there's the Artisan's Gate, there's the Stonecutter's Gate, there's the Children's Gate, there's the Women's Gate. Those are symbolic entrances. It's not to say that only that person can go through that particular gate. The idea is, regardless of what background you come from, this is a park for you, and that all walks of life can enjoy it. For better and for worse, one other byproduct of the Progressive era is something we discuss a lot on this show. Prohibition. And while, in hindsight, it was a pretty unbelievably terrible idea, at the time it was tied up in a lot of good fights like women's suffrage and the nascent struggle for income equality. 
And for all its many, many failures, which we here at Bar None have dutifully cataloged, there was something interesting that comes out on the other side of repeal. Well, it was kind of a force of democracy in a way, because once we got at the other end of that tunnel, everybody was drinking everything. And, you know, the martini was everyone's drink, the Manhattan was everyone's drink. Um, you, weren't, you weren't showing off, you weren't a big shot, you didn't have a lot of money if you ordered Manhattan in a bar. Anyone could order Manhattan. Anyone did order Manhattan. Maybe it's because it's easy to make. Or maybe it's because a decent bottle of rye has never been too difficult to find or too expensive to buy. Whatever the reason, the Manhattan, this Gilded Age, Golden Age toy of the rich, became somewhat improbably the people's drink. Every, just about every other person who see a horse, it, it makes bring you to a different mindset. You think about something else. All the problems that you had, you leave it for a moment and look at the horse and say, this is so beautiful. And just, it, horses attract, the energy of a horse attract everybody. So New York City are very lucky that we're still here, willing to care and work with horses. Ariel has been a carriage driver in Central Park for the past 38 years. He's shy about being interviewed at first, but polite about it, motioning for the microphone to go away before we talk. He chats for 10 minutes about life, the comings and goings in Central Park, and that most curious act of being a New Yorker. And then he asks for the mic again. Today, people don't have this chance anymore. Before, everybody used to have a horse. There were no cars. The horses were all around us. And now it's rare animals, to species to, to be close to, or touch and give carrots or talk to. So our, you know, our horses is healing people from all this environment of rush, 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 and all this stress that people go through. They come to see the horse. It gives them a different perspective. Now it's, it's beautiful. Growing up on a farm, Ariel's been around horses his entire life. When he moved to the city as a young man, he felt drawn to the Central Park stables and the horses that call them home. He's been working with them ever since. They like to touch him. They like to feed him carrots. We always have carrots on the carriage, most many of us, so they, can, they have a chance to feed the horse and feed the carrots and look at him, smell him, hug him, <laughs> all, the whole yard. So, you know, we, we build a community of okay? here. We build a community a lot of people already through the years that I worked here. The horse he's working with tonight is Mohana, which means beautiful in Cheyenne. Privately, though, Ariel calls him Whiskey. They're on for another couple of hours, hoping to pick up a few more fares before the night is over. After that, they'll both go home, get a few hours of sleep, and come back to look for riders again tomorrow. When people come to the park, they usually, it's, they're already in good shape, <laughs> pretty much. If they're willing to once they get to the park, so yeah. the short time that they come to a park, it's a big relief for them. So it's nice, you know, to work in Center Park, which is really the only lungs, in, the only place in the city that you can really breathe a, a clean air almost, if you can say. Olmsted and the board did eventually patch up their differences. He came back to work, but his relationship with the park was never quite the same after that. Eventually, he left the day-to-day -day work behind, 
His success with Vox had brought a slew of new commissions streaming across his desk. He consulted with the park, albeit in a diminished capacity, until it was done some ten years later. One day in late spring, 1874, as construction was drawing to a close, Olmsted and his family visited the park, just a few of the millions of people who had already passed through its gates. This area is situated in the center of the city, having a population not altogether homogenous, and bringing to the society of the metropolis views and ideas differing as widely as the temperature of the various countries of their origin. The work of fusing the people of differing nationalities into one body can be accomplished only during the life of two or three generations, and it would be difficult to prescribe rules that would satisfy these dissimilar tastes and habits. The most that can be attained at the park is to afford an opportunity for those recreations. Most histories of the park will tell you that that was the year Central Park was finished. But it's not a building. It's not a static thing. It's organic, made of trees and grass and a people, growing and changing all the time. Something like that, it's never truly finished. Was there kind of a, an opening day where it's like, it's done! What was, uh, what was that like as they were coming down the finish line? You know, I wouldn't really say that there was a... I think there's milestones, but I wouldn't necessarily say that there is a day where the park is open. Um, there was definitely the... Um, there's a few milestones uh, that were pretty important for the park, like uh, Bethesda Terrace. And uh, Bethesda Terrace was pretty big for the park. Uh, definitely the... Um, Definitely the new the new reservoir is a big one too. Bow Bridge as well. There's just a, there's just a whole bunch of little milestones, and to be honest, the park has never truly been done. The Manhattan's also come a long way since its inception. Once the purview of the wealthy and powerful, it's now a drink that pretty much everyone knows and pretty much every bartender can make. We're at a point now in the 21st century where getting a decent Manhattan at a tiny watering hole in Des Moines or Topeka or really anywhere is a reasonable expectation. It brings up the question, though, why these two things? Why did this drink and this park survive when so much else from that era has fallen by the wayside? How did the Gilded Age, the age that gave us Tammany Hall and eugenics and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that thought that it had everything figured out and everything right and was wrong about almost all of it, how did they, through sheer seeming luck, manage to get these two things perfectly right? Maybe it's overly hopeful and maybe it's naive. But I believe that Central Park and the Manhattan survived because unlike everything else from the Gilded Age, they weren't just for the rich. They weren't just for the powerful. Unlike brownstones and private clubs and musical cars, they're not just for the few. They're for everybody. I think Frederick Law Olmsted said it best. The time will come when New York will be built up, when all the grading and filling will be done, and when the rocky formations of the island will have been converted into foundations for rows of monotonous straight streets and piles of erect, angular buildings. There will be no suggestion left of its present varied surface, with the single exception of the park. 
It therefore seemed desirable to interfere with its easy, undulating outlines and picturesque rocky scenery as little as possible. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. A big, big thank you to our special guest today. Robert Simonson is a cocktail and spirits writer based in New York City, and Kyle Salee is an actor, musician, and a tour guide with Central Park Food Tours. And thank you to the magnificent people who played Frederick Law Olmsted on our show, who were, in order, Colin Connor, Gary Kai Fletcher, Francesca Chilcote, Chris Stinson, and Mary Myers. And finally, thanks to all of our voices from Central Park. You were all exceptionally giving and generous of your time on an unseasonably chilly day in September, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Tune in next time when we talk about the gathering clouds of war and perhaps the most famous drink named after a weapon. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.